content warning. This interview includes brief mentions of suicidal ideation, complex trauma, abuse of a child, substance use and abuse, sexual assault, and medical descriptions of a skin disorder. Stories bring us closer to ourselves. Through the narrative act of storytelling, we engage in an intricate process of weaving memories, felt experiences, and self-conceptions together into some semblance of cohesion, understanding, or peace. This cognitive process called meaning-making is one that we engage in in the therapy room, over coffee with friends on the weekend, or when doing a creative act like writing a memoir. We discover more of the content of who we are by actively writing the story of ourselves into reality. But stories also possess a great social or communal power. Sharing stories of our own experiences can knit interpersonal bonds with strangers, evoking empathy and compassion, releasing the neurochemical oxytocin in the brain, and helping us to come together to work on behalf of a greater good. Stories bring us closer to ourselves, but they also bring us closer to one another. That's the case even if a story you hear is one that, perhaps, you don't suppose you could personally relate to. Take this example. Maybe you've never lived a booze and drug-fueled fast life in the underground world of adult entertainment in Waikiki, Hawaii in the 80s and 90s. Our guest today has. Her story is one of survival. It's one of struggling with feeling less than, craving acceptance from others, and fighting to fit in. She says you have a lot to learn from a story like hers. From the New Story Company, this is The New Story Is, a podcast that explores the stories, perceptions, and ideas that have come to shape the world today as we know it. Along the way, we speak to talented guests who are championing the news stories that may help shape our collective future for the good. I'm Dave Ursulo. We're joined today by Christine McDonald, Los Angeles-based author who grew up on the Hawaiian island of Oahu. Her book is called Face Value, From Working the Pole to Burying My Soul, which tells the true story of her life and how she became an exotic dancer. Christine was diagnosed with a rare, severe skin disease at age 13, which left over 80% of her face scarred, and the trauma she endured in her young life led her to the underground world of adult entertainment, where Christine spent nearly a decade trying to find her self-worth. Her book shares her struggles with substance abuse and addiction, as well as her experiences with mental illness, including clinical depression and PTSD resulting from childhood abuse. Using cutting humor and brutal honesty, Christine's story models what it means to overcome struggles and release shame and stigmas around one's past through storytelling. Her work has appeared in Salon, The Good Men Project, Anaheim Examiner, among other publications. Christine, welcome to The New Story Is, and thank you so much for joining us. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much, Dave. I feel like it's been a long time. It has been a long time, and that's where I actually want to start, Christine, because this is a this is a special conversation for us. We're getting the first opportunity to speak face-to-face, if through the screen. Um, we've never had the opportunity to meet in person, but you and I have, have been connected through social media, through the internet, for probably the better part of like 12 years, at least 10 years, maybe 12 or 13 years. I think we first connected through relatively small writing circles on Twitter 
back in the earliest days of of Twitter and you know really at the advent of social media. And I want to start there because I'm curious if you could take us back, if we time travel back to that point in your journey and in your life as a future memoirist back 10, 12 years ago, where do you remember yourself being in the process of telling the eventual story that would come out in your book, Face Value? Where were you in like your, your personal life and uh, in the process of being a storyteller at that time? So about 12 years ago, you're right, it was over a decade ago, uh, I was right in the heart in the thick of really wrapping my head around the fact that my story is unique and it is something that I want to share and tell. So because my past is very salacious and in some people's minds, it could also be um, frowned upon because, you know, ignorance breeds hate. We all know that narrative, right? So um, there were a lot of mental roadblocks in finding the courage to actually finish the book. So (laughs) I am the queen of self-sabotage. And so what I was doing, and this is ironic because how you and I met, I was promoting a book that wasn't even finished. So here I am talking about my story. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. and, And really, like, if you look up cart before the horse, if you Google that, you'll find a big old picture of me because that's exactly what I was doing. I, I, instead of really just turning everything off, unplugging and focusing on the story, I was I spent a lot of time promoting the book that <laughs> wasn't even written yet. So that's where I was. I wasn't quite settled, but uh, I was well on my way. That's for sure. Yeah. And and to be fair, though, in the process of developing your blog, uh, which was called Pole to Soul, and doing the early writing that you were doing, I know you actually got quite a bit of buzz in those early days when it felt like attention on the internet was much easier to to get because the competition just wasn't as um, wasn't as stiff in the grand scheme of things like it is these days, 10, 12 plus years later, you were awarded something from Google called, I think it was the, the award was called a blog of note. And I know that that actually gave you a big surplus of attention, um, uh, a new influx of subscribers. What was it like for you, even though you were describing yourself as, you know, putting the cart before the horse and publicizing a book that hadn't been written yet? What kind of affirmation did you receive in getting that positive attention um, from the outside world through social media? Was it encouraging or did it put like a ton of pressure on you to continue to try to write the book that didn't exist yet? <laughs> That's a great question. Actually, a little bit of both, to be honest with you. I started tinkering with a blog, Poll to Soul, and that is really just tongue-in-cheek way of saying I went from working the poll to burying my soul. I mean, can you get a little cheesier? I don't think so. But that ended up being the title of my book, Face Value from Working the Pole to Burying My Soul. So as I'm just tinkering with these stories and thinking to myself, oh, I bet you people would might be interested in this. As soon as I got the blog of note, everything exploded. And I realized when that happened, I really could turn this into a positive platform rather than just sort of boasting about, oh, I I grew up in Waikiki and I was an adult entertainer. I could really dig a little deeper with my story and, and make it more about my why. Why did I make those choices? Why did I end up on stage? Why did I feel validation from Uh, men or women, anyone giving me a dollar bill was the barometer for my self-worth. So once I got the blog of note, my audience grew exponentially, about 26,000 followers, I think I kept out at. Uh, And then I was invited to New York 
to uh, for the Red Umbrella Diaries, and which is a sex workers advocacy group. And boy, was I just blown away and excited about that because again, manuscript not finished, but I've got one chapter ready to go. So flew to New York, did that, and everything just started escalating from there. So I felt a little anxious that uh, the manuscript wasn't finished yet, but I was also extremely pumped. And I knew at that moment when I got the blog, and no, when I went to New York, that there's something special here. Yeah. And and I know in your memoir, Christine, you mentioned, you write, in fact, uh, and this is a quote, you say, for nearly 20 years, I've been writing my story, but parts of my past were permanently closed due to poor management of my mental health. And you disclose not only about your relationship to mental health and mental illness, which the future mental health counselor in me really values and appreciates. So thank you for modeling that for us and destigmatizing that for us. I know that your writing your story was interrupted by recognizing a need to prioritize your mental health. So could you tell us a little bit about how in the process of, you know, doing the work of trying to tell your story, you recognize the need to take some breaks? And then, of course, we're going to talk about your your actual story and the, and the life you've lived. But I am curious for this context, especially because I have such an interest in the mental health side. So how did how did writing your story get interrupted by this need for like this mental um, uh Stealth health care. That's a that's a tongue twister for sure. It really is. Um, well, one of the beautiful things about therapy, I'm such an advocate for therapy. Can you imagine, Dave, if, if in this world every single one of us had that special therapist to go to to just sort of, you know, make sure that we're okay in our headspace? What a wonderful world this would be, right? Another. I mean, I can't even think about. It. But for me personally, therapy has taught me, and I've been in and out of therapy since I was 19. I'm 54 now, proudly, and we earn every year. So yes, I'm 54. One of the things that I can tell about my mental health is I know when I need help. I know when I need to go back. And writing the story was, it surprised me in a couple ways. The first way is I'm needing to go back into a time where I was high and I was numb. And, you know, I am not a expert with addiction and I don't um, ever pretend to be, but when you revisit those types of things for me personally, uh, it, I was triggered and I wanted to use. I just thought it was my only mechanism for um, helping my mental health back then. But of course now, 30 years later, I know that I can just call up my therapist and say, I need some help revisiting these moments because when you revisit moments that you were so numb and self-anesthetized, it's sort of a new lens that you're looking through your story. Um, I started out writing the book as a vanity project. And the, the more, the deeper I got into the harder stories, I just wanted to wrap my arms around that girl, that young girl, you know? So that's mm. where, that's where taking the pause to really focus on my mental health came from and uh, really helping me finish it because those those voices of self-doubt come in when you least expect them. And so I had one voice on, in one part of my brain saying, you've got the story, you're talented, go for it. And then I had this, another part of my story, who are you? No one's going to listen to you. Who's going to buy this book? You don't have, you know what I mean? So it was a little bit of a juxtaposition. So just being self-aware that just comes with years of therapy. Yeah, it's a great example of of why ther the therapeutic process is so valuable for us as like a long term, 
support system and, and not just something for when we are in crisis, although it can be great when having the right therapists and the right interventions when we are feeling uh, triggered and, and those different impulses and different behavioral things and and such. But um, I, I thank you for for sharing your experiences with that, Christine. So let's go back to the story that you do tell in your book and, and your early life. And you know, we've mentioned it a couple of times by now that you grew up in Hawaii. I know you weren't born there. Um, and, and because we're in an audio format here on a podcast, somebody who's listening may presume that somebody or many people growing up in Hawaii are either, you know, AAPI or of Polynesian ancestry or uh, are considered to be like native or local Hawaiian or of Asian ancestry. You, I, I know that you're of Irish descent. Would you identify as white? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Which is... I'm a young white girl growing up in Hawaii. That's a whole other story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Could you tell us the short story of how you, you ended up growing up in Hawaii, if and how it's relevant to the story of, you know, the, if for the simple fact that you were living there in Waikiki? Of course. Of course. And I blame no one for assuming I was part of the military tribe because many of uh, common story it... and experience, right? Correct. So the white people they call Haole, um, and or Haole, if you want to get uh, technical about it. And that basically means you're not of the land. So my father, my biological father was with Pan Am Airlines. I don't know if you remember Pan Am, but he was uh, stationed in, he was in uh, Burlingame, California. I was born there. And then just a few months after that, I was still in diapers they relocated to the island. And that's why I ended up becoming from Hawaii. Yeah. And for you growing up in Hawaii, you know, like Hawaii is such is is so idealized in the culture. It's globally renowned. It's considered to be this real tropical paradise on earth. And something like, I think, 8 million people per year visit Hawaii um, as tourists. I'm wondering if the, if you as a young person had any awareness for that kind of nature? Did you notice like a transient touristic population? Did it alter your sense of community growing up? Is it something that you just, you know, because it's all that you knew you didn't think about it? Um, I'm curious about that aspect of it for you. Excellent question. Being from a tourist destination as Hawaii is very, mm, what's the word? almost insignificant to the people that are living there if they don't know any better, like you mentioned. Um, I would often ask others, you know, or even the tourists when I was a young girl, why are you standing at the water's edge with your camera? This is the way the sky looks every day. Like, it's, it's, to me, it wasn't anything. And I mean, talk about taking things for granted, but we didn't know. I mean, we meaning anyone who's from there. When I moved to the mainland, when I moved to California, <laughs> funny story, and I think this is in the book. I didn't have a car. I was 28 years old. I was just trying to find out my next move in life. And I was walking everywhere. And I looked at the mountains. This is in Northern California, Mount Diablo. I looked at the mountains and it was gray. And I thought, oh, it's going to rain. It's going to rain in 10 minutes because in Hawaii, we used to call it liquid sunshine. It just blows over and boom, you're done. So I've got my umbrella. I call a cab thinking it's going to rain. And the cab driver, who's from the East Coast, so you can't make this stuff up. He goes, well, what's, what's with the umbrella, lady? What's with the umbrella? And I go, I said, look. And I pointed to the, he, he says, honey, that's smog. That's smog. So that's just another... <laughs> 
I have many anecdotes like that. So yes, to get it back to your question, <laughs> I did not know any different until I moved to the mainland. And then oh, people buying water is another example. Why do, why do people buy water? Are they preparing for a hurricane? Because in Hawaii, nobody buys bottled water. Well, but in the 70s and 80s, I should say, it's been a while since I've lived there. But when you see people stocking up on bottled water, that's because it's a hurricane coming. So I was on the mainland. I didn't realize that some places you do not want to drink out of the. So that's just a couple examples of my uh, my ignorance with life lessons. Yeah. And I wonder if, Christine, you could also tell us a little bit. Of course, you're coming at this from from, uh, you know, like a white racial perspective, but. I know from firsthand experience, having been to Hawaii a few times, having looked into the uh, read research, learned about the history, speaking to to, to some native Hawaiians who are who are kamaaina or uh, the, the term meaning of the land, meaning someone who is a local of Polynesian or Asian ancestry. I think um, I, I may be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure that's that's the definition. Are you um, good? Okay, yeah, and um, and like the more like white. You could say colonists, non-locals, or the haole, like you, you as you pronounce it, meaning people who are not of the land. I know that there's a lot of tensions that that still exist in Hawaiian culture today that tourists may not actually know of or be exposed to. You know, Hawaii is a place that was you know colonized by the United States and by by outsiders. A lot of like the ancestral lands have been developed. Um, you know, there's many military bases uh, on the land now. It's been industrialized, modernized. Um, there's a lot of wounds. There's a lot of uh, substance use among local Hawaiian populations today, um, resulting from various traumas and disenfranchisement and so forth. This could be a whole other conversation that we have, um, but I do want to add that pretext just to, you know, educate our listeners a little bit on some of the different uh, issues that persist in, in modern Hawaii. It's not just a place where people go and and kind of live this life of luxury. And we'll get to more about your story as well. But I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit, maybe there's an anecdote that comes to mind about some of the tensions that coexist between Kama'aina, local Hawaiians, and then the, you know, non-locals or the, you know, the, um, the people who aren't of the land, the Ha'ole. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting that you say that because on TikTok, I've been on TikTok for a little over a year. I remember seeing a video of a local person saying, tourists do not come to Hawaii. You know, the corporations are taking the money, the locals don't get the money. And I thought that was an insane ask because number one, I haven't lived there since 96, but my mom, my family are there, I still visit. So I have a different lens. So I posted saying, well, that's just ridiculous. And this is my bad and a definite learning lesson for me. So I posted without doing any research, mistake number one. And I said, my friends are in the hospitality industry. If you tell people not to go to Hawaii, that's taking food from her table. Because I was thinking about those types of things. And then I got a whole lot of people tagging me in these posts educating me and they were not happy. There were a lot of um, local Polynesians, Kama'ainas that were educating me on the way that things are now and that everything is so, it's just very different. And I can say that when I visit my family, instead of, uh, you know, driving through Waikiki, it used to be mom and 
stores and people's bashing coconuts on the sidewalk. And now it looks like, you know, Louis Vuitton, Chanel, it's all gentrified and it's very high ticket items and all of those things. But the number one lesson that I learned, by the way, I took that TikTok post down. I humbly apologized. I got on board with my Ohana and Ohana means family. And these are people who are uh, from Hawaii, who have grown up there, uh, anyone that you feel close with, they're just ohana. So I brought them into my circle and said, please, I asked them, educate me. So they did, they educated me. And a lot of what they're asking isn't isn't crazy. I think that it's if, if you do go to the islands as a tourist, please respect their land, respect their rules, and immerse yourself in the culture. If you can get away from the big corporations and the big hotels, see if you can get a local's Airbnb and support them that way. Um, there's different ways to look at it. Um, I'm not going to say don't ever visit Hawaii, but I am also not part of that culture. So I can't really speak on their behalf. But um, I asked them, I said, is it okay if I still go there to visit my mom? And they said, of course, girl, you're Kama'aina. But still, I felt very grateful and humbled because I instinctively just posted this TikTok saying, well, this is ridiculous. Don't ask people not to why. And boy, was I wrong. I, I completely get it now. And you're right. The history is ugly. And my heart goes out to all of the indigenous people of Hawaii and uh, you know, I'm in their corner for sure. Yeah. It, uh, it, there's a, there's a lot there. I think I, what I really appreciate the most Christine is um, your own willingness and curiosity to like, to engage with your own mistakes and presumptions, especially with the passage of time and how things have changed and, and how things in different places can change so rapidly when there's an influx of money there, especially when corporate interests are prioritized over the interest of locals. And unfortunately, we know within in like a, you know, European American colonial industrial capitalist on it goes society, this kind of like rapid exploitation of resources and people and culture um, gets really ugly really fast. And hopefully maybe someday if there, if there is, um, if there is a Kama'aina from, from Hawaii who wants to educate us about what's going on, uh, going on there from firsthand point of view, welcome on to, to the new story is, but um, continuing on our conversation, Christine, I do want to talk about your experience being diagnosed at age 13 with something called AC or acne conglobata, which you describe as a rare and severe skin disease. And it left over 80% of your face scarred. And you did go on to have uh, some, some surgeries for the scarring on your face. In your book, you actually include some pre and post operative photos to show the extent of the operation. And I'm curious to ask you about how your experience with AC, which you chronicle in the book, but to give us a sense of how this condition, which left your face like very swollen. It was like, I mean, I don't know how to appropriately describe it, but it was like acne times a hundred, right? Like very severe swelling um, and, and things. How did, how did this experience affect your sense of self-esteem and self-confidence and like your sense of self as a very young person? You're absolutely right. My face was swollen. It was covered in blood filled cysts that were almost the size of golf balls, a little smaller than golf balls. And the, the blood was so dark that they were purple. And uh, even uh, it was so bad that somebody at school once said, oh, who hit you? Did somebody hit you? They thought I had a big black eye, but it 
It was really just the cysts around my right eye. Um, and to answer your question about my self-worth, it broke my compass. It broke my, it broke my compass of how to navigate one's self-worth. I felt like the elephant man and my nickname was Freddy Krueger, pizza face, crater face, moon face. Um, the acne conglobata is basically severe cystic stage four acne. So acne has four stages. Number one is just regular teenage acne. Two, you're going to be okay with some topical solutions. By the time you get to stage four, which is the severe cystic acne, which is what I had that turned into acne conglobata, you need to see a, a professional. You need to see a doctor. You can't just put a topical. This is all very deep underneath the skin. And um, ironically, it's inherited through the blood. Uh, and I inherited it from my, my father. But just the fact that I had this all over my face, I, I didn't want to live. I had fantasies about not waking up and I did not know at the time that that's suicidal ideation. And uh, I turned to drugs to sort of numb my pain. And when I discovered alcohol and drugs at such a young age while still in high school, my answers for my sadness were quickly, uh, I mean, it helped. <laughs> it helped a lot for sure. But of course, at the end, it hurt. But yeah your question i just didn't want to live it was mm. it was a very very horrific time yeah mm. and even before you were diagnosed with ac and went through these very traumatic experiences uh you know of bullying um and and just and as you mentioned like the suicidal ideation aspect of things so it was it's clear that it was like really really traumatic and affecting for you there were other traumas that you experienced too that you detail in the book um to various extents uh, you mentioned being sexually active from a very young age. You were exposed to a lot of different forms of abuse and, and verbal abuse within your household. You mentioned the, the drug and alcohol use. There was uh, a sexual assault at a very young age as well. And then there's the story of you actually getting arrested at age nine. Now, the story of you getting arrested at age nine is a little bit more lighthearted, which is why I kind of want to veer in that direction, not to minimize the other traumas and experiences, but you you do speak of those in the book. Um, and this one is, I think, almost like exemplifies exemplifies what you would be going through throughout, you know, the, the rest of your teenage years. Could you tell us about what happened, how you ended up arrested at the age of nine as as a, as a, as a, a literal child? <laughs> Third grader gone wild child is what I call it. Well, it's interesting. And I honestly wish I could remember what prompted me to go on a shop. I was shoplifting. I was uh, nine years old. And I remember after school, I have an older sister. She's 21 months older than I am. So she's almost two years older. And I went up to her and I said, do you want to come steal with me? And she looked at me and her head tilted. And she says, what are you talking about? You know, like an older sibling would do like, what are you, what are you talking about? Come on, let's just go. It'll be fun. So I'm thinking I must've seen it on a movie I wasn't supposed to be watching or just, I, I'm not sure where the genesis of that idea came from, but looking back, and of course, now as I'm reading and writing the book, I 100% believe that it was just an act of wanting to be seen because uh, I love my mother dearly. She was wrapped up in her own chaos, and it's not my story to exploit, but she was not around very much. So I just went into the grocery store and picked up a Barbie doll and a Snickers candy bar 
And I felt like the most powerful woman in the world, or the little girl in the world. And I thought, well, this is fun. And there's that first dopamine shot right there, you know, when, when, and that's the brain, right? And uh, of course, unbeknownst to me at the time. And so I'm walking out of the grocery store and I feel the show, I feel a, a hand on my shoulder. And he says, little girl, come with me. And boy, whew, I mean, talk about going from excited to for fearing my life. And I thought, uh, my mom was going to get called and I would be grounded and just go home. My mom was called, but she wanted to teach me a lesson. And this was her own scared straight moment. She uh, instructed the store manager to call the police and have them handcuff me and ride in the back of the squad car and be held in the holding cell all day while she was at work, all day long, all afternoon, I should say, because it was after school. Um, so yeah, that, that's an experience that really act, act started activating my memory. Cause honestly, I have no memory before that time, before that incident. Yeah. Yeah. I know it was a really early memory for you and, you know, listeners were, were both kind of laughing at the absurdity, uh, <laughs> of, of this situation. But I mean, like talk about something that was probably in and of itself, quite traumatizing. I can't believe that the police like went through with this and weren't just like, to your mom, like, lady, come on, like, we have other things to do than arrest a nine-year-old for shoplifting a Barbie and a Snickers to send her a message. Um, I, like, and can I you know. imagine the backlash that would happen today if something like that, like, it would be global news. Anyway, it's, yeah, it's, oh, it's a big sure. deal. Yeah, it's yeah. a big and, deal. Mm -hmm. And yeah. how, how how does this memory, you know, you mentioned that your mother's story is not yours to tell, and which I, I value and appreciate, um, and it is important lesson for us all to take home when it comes to, you know, talking in the intro about storytelling, the importance of storytelling. Some stories aren't ours to tell. Um, but how does this example kind of serve of what kind of issues you were dealing with in relationship to your mother for years to come? There was, as you said, this element of attention seeking, uh, um, not only for, not for like uh, necessarily like illicit purposes or like, but like want, like craving some, some motherly attention, some parental uh, affection or caretaking, it sounds like. So how did this continue into your, your teenage years uh, to the point where you eventually became an exotic dancer? Well, that's a great question. My mother and I, we have a great relationship now. I'm, we're very close. I love her and I've never not loved her, but I was angry at her very long time. She was left by my biological father, but when I was two years old and he fell in love with a flight attendant, a stewardess, you would say back then, and uh, he left. And so she was left to raise her two toddlers on her own. She ended up dating somebody who was a classic malignant narcissist and got all caught up in, in that chaos. And if you've ever, if you know, I'm sure you do because of your, um, your studies, the NPD and the codependent relationship, which I would define my mother as and myself uh, is very, very toxic and very, the trauma bonds are very um, difficult to break. And so my mom was caught up in her own chaos, which left my sister and I to sort of fend for ourselves. And I'm, I don't know, I mean, I'm sure you've heard the term latchkey children, I'm from that generation, Generation X, where you grow up in the 70s and 80s, you just have a house key on a string wrapped to, I mean, underneath your shirt, and that's it. You, I mean, there's no parental uh, supervision around. So my mother 
sort of took that to the next level. And unbeknownst to her, she, I, she did not wake up every day saying, how can I neglect my child? She uh, did the best she could with the template that she had. And by the way, she was raised by a woman that was unwell. And this is all the stuff that I've learned in writing my book. So um, for a long time, I was angry, very, very angry at her. And uh from, from what caused me to get up on the stage and start my career as a, as a dancer, that's all illustrated in the book. It was really just a, a wet t-shirt contest. One of my girlfriends, who's this gorgeous beach, beach Barbie blonde, um, was approached. She was approached to, to do the contest, but I was with her. And she said, well, I'll do it if she does it, which was me. And when I had that opportunity, my very first thought was, I mean, it was a big F you to my mom. I mean, you can't get more passive aggressive than choosing your stage name, Stephanie, which is my middle name, but guess what my mother's name is. <laughs> so it's pretty bad, right? I mean, God love my mom. She, she does have a sense of humor about it now, but yeah. So our relationship is fine, but for a long time, I was very angry at her. You go on to write in your book, Christine, that the first time you felt beautiful is when you were on stage. Uh, and then as as the appeal of, of exotic dancing started to gather some momentum, you also write, and this is a quote, it was a no-brainer, utilizing my sexuality, my slamming body, and my love of dance in exchange for that feeling of power. As a bonus, I was making tons of cash. Based on your experiences, how would you describe what it was like for you to step into that um, uh, that world of exotic dancing for those who don't have direct knowledge? And how did it activate or I should, maybe the word would be like honor all of those needs that you were feeling as a young person, the need to be seen and accepted, the, the, you know, you mentioned the anger that you had towards your mother specifically, um, the want to, to be appealing and to feel beautiful, especially based on your experiences with AC. So like, what was that like for you to, to step on the stage for those first times? Oh, a hundred percent validation, validation, 100%. Also, that sense of power and control. When I was on stage, also you have to remember I was high. I was, you know, I was doing cocaine. I was snorting uh, morning, noon, and night. I was, I was doing a lot of pakololo, a lot of pot, drinking like a fish. So I was never fully in my power. I was never fully uh, cognizant on stage. I was sort of just in a cloud of um, delusion. But boy, did I have a good time. Boy, did every, I mean, all those dollar bills coming at me. It was a big, see, who's Freddy Krueger now? Like, you know what I mean? It was so very validating um, and uh, a lot of fun. But the thing is, when you get wrapped up into a lifestyle like that, and you know that the only way out is, is not going to be easy, you just do more drugs. <laughs> That's what I did for nine years. But yeah, to answer your question, validating, powerful. Yeah. And so you mentioned that you kind of had this awareness that, you know, as the years go on, you spent about 10 years um, mm -hmm. dancing and you detail in your book some of the, the stories, you know, for those who don't know, at this time in Waikiki was like celebrities and rock stars and you and your your group of fellow dancers were treated like rock stars and going like club to club in limos. And there was just you know, drugs everywhere. Um, you're living in this tropical paradise. It's it sounds like a fever dream, right? Um, and 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 you lived it. This was this was life. This was a re your reality. 
And it's ticking all these boxes for you, the needs for feelings of validation, power, and control. I appreciated in your book how when you were describing this longing that you had, you know, later in life for that feeling of like power and control and validation when you'd step on stage that your therapist, you say, called you out on that and was like, you are high. Like that was like not a real feeling of power. You were just intoxicated and it was giving you this sensation, but it was still also ticking these. I, I keep saying ticking these boxes. What I mean is like it, the, the needs that you were feeling fundamentally as a person, as a human being, based on your childhood, your upbringing, were being kind of, or being satiated in a way, but not in the healthiest of ways and in ways that would ultimately let you down. So you mentioned a, a moment ago, Christine, that there was a superficiality or a fragility maybe to these feelings that you were feeling going, you know, at, over these 10 years. What were some of the signals that the life you were living was starting to lead you astray or not give you everything that you were hoping in terms of like roundabout looking for healing? Yeah, I went from using cocaine to cocaine using me for sure. And, you know, what started out as a stripping career to validate my beauty ended up stripping my beauty away. I mean, really. So it was a full circle moment. What the little things started to seep through the cracks. I didn't know that I was clinically depressed at the time. I didn't know I had PTSD from my childhood traumas. And so the hangovers were getting old and turning 30. Do you know when you're in your late twenties and you're thinking, oh my God, I'm going to be 30. My life is so, oh my God, what have I done? And now you look back at it and you go, oh, that's adorable. Oh my God, you're adorable. So when I was 28 years old, I was thinking to myself, I'm not going to be a grandma on the pole. I got to figure something out here. I don't have a college education. I'm stuck on this island and, and anywhere I go, it's a five and a half hour plane ride. Um, what am I going to do? What's, what's the next step? And so I write about this in the book where there was a gal, I was in the dressing room, I had my makeup container out and I was just about ready to get dolled up for the night. I'm my eyes. I'm so hungover. I'm so burnt out. I don't see the pretty blue that I have in my eyes. I just saw gray, a very dull shade of gray. And then I see this girl walk into the dressing room about 19 years old. So about 10 years younger than me. And I instantly got all of these flashbacks of just how many years I've been in the game. And, and then that's just sort of catapulted my, okay, you need to do something with your life. So between the hangovers and um, the, the multiple, multiple heartbreaks that I gave myself in actuality, and you'll have to read the book <laughs> to get to that. Answer. But, I, you know, when you choose partners that are not healthy for you and you can't figure out why, yeah, that's, that's good therapy. <laughs> yeah. And, and I want to ask you as well, Christine. Uh, you are absolutely right that people are going to have to go get your book in order to, to hear all of the juiciest details and, and all of the candor. You've done such a great job of writing with, like I said, in the intro, there's, there's a lot of humor. Sometimes it's self-deprecating. Sometimes it just it lightens the mood because you're talking about heavy, heavy content, heavy, heavy subject matters. And of course we're talking about like trauma, complex PTSD and, and, and drug use and abuse. It's, it's not always the easiest conversation, but it's, a, these are important conversations to have because they're real, Right. Um, and to that point, I'm curious about leaving the life of exotic dancing behind. And I know it was hard and it kind of almost sounded to me like when I was reading your book, like it was a lot like how I am exposed to stories of those who are dealing with substance use and abuse or addiction where it's a little bit uh, start and stop. There's, there's um, 
commitments to it, and then there's regression. How how did you break out of exotic dancing? Was it possible to leave like the job, the work of it behind without leaving the lifestyle behind? And was it possible to leave the lifestyle behind without leaving Waikiki because it's such a small, it was at the time such a small knit community. And I imagine just like the lifestyle was in your face every corner you turned. It was absolutely. Waikiki is three miles long. And it consists of three major streets. So you're absolutely right. And then when you factor in the misfits and the outcasts and the people that live uh, and are working in the underground world, such as, you know, the sex work industry or the stripping industry. Uh, yes, it's a very small, it's a very small community. So the first thing I did was I left the island and I thought in my young naivete that as soon as I leave, I'll just start fresh. And that worked for a little while, but every time I would go out and meet, meet some friends, I started waiting tables, met some friends, those, um, tr- that, not triggers, the, um, the cravings for partying were seeping through my psyche. And I thought, okay, I can shake this off. But because the lifestyle is so unique, uh, I, there were many, many times where my quote-unquote Uh, civilian life sort of clashed with my old party life. In other words, I would meet some friends from the restaurant where I was waitressing and then we'd go out clubbing and their night, their idea of clubbing is just, you go out, you dance, you have a couple drinks, you go home. My night of clubbing is see you in a couple days. Do you know what I mean? So I really had to learn how to regulate my new lifestyle. And again, always getting back to the therapy Finding the right therapist to me was key and learning that you cannot run away from your problems. You can change your zip code, but if you have those internal issues and it's all about your why, why did I start taking the drugs? Why did I choose this life as a, as a stripper? As soon as you can dig into those whys, then you can start the healing process, which is what I did. Yeah. Do you mind if I ask you, Christine, a little bit about your your therapy journey? Because this wasn't in our, our the the questions that I came up with. But would you mind answering a couple of questions just out of curiosity? Of course. Uh, well, I am curious if um, for your experience as a whole, it sounds like the therapeutic process therapy has been really important for you. You mentioned the importance of having a good therapist, finding the right one, which I think a lot of people who aren't uh, who are new to therapy think that every therapist is exactly the same or has the same modalities or experiences. Um, But there's a little bit more of like a matchmaking process that is important to find someone that kind of like works for you, works with you. And I'm curious about if, uh, so I'm curious about like your journey as a whole and, and how that has continued to support you. I'm also really interested if, and you might not know this like language or lingo or terminology because I'm actively a student of this stuff, but if there have been certain modalities or experiences for you um, that have been particularly helpful, like if there's been, if it's just talk therapy and kind of like processing different things out, if you've done anything that's specific um, to trauma recovery, kind of just curious for what comes to mind for you. Well, I can speak to the therapist that I'm seeing now, and she's an attachment therapist. And so we focus on the attachment styles or lack thereof with my childhood. And uh, you explained it perfectly. It is like a dating game. And and I call it, uh, you know, Aetna roulette or whatever whatever insurance provider you have, it's kind of like roulette, right? I mean, they, here's my zip code. Oh, here's some doctors. Half the time they're, 
they're not updated. You know, the lists are old. And so it's really just a matter of finding the right one. And that could take a while and it's exhausting. And it, and it gets me to, I mean, it's a little disheartening because people all, some people have a, um, a belief system with therapy. It takes too long. It's too expensive. And you can't find the right one. All of those things could be true, but think about your life and how you want it to be. What is the life you want to live? And if the right therapist can help you, and for me personally, each one that I've had, they have not all been great, but the great ones help you navigate your own road by answering the questions that you're seeking the answers to, because you already know the answers. And a good therapist is not going to tell you what to do. A good therapist is going to help you unveil those roadblocks. And my self-sabotaging roadblocks is I just didn't want to, I didn't want to grow up. I didn't want to face the fact that I was the one causing all of this chaos. And as soon as I realized I have more power than I realized that I, that I thought that I did, my whole world changed. I couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you, Christine. And, you know, talking about the here and now, talking about today, I know that one of your passions has been speaking to young women, especially who have a variety of self-esteem issues that they're working through. Could you tell us a little bit about how you strive to help young women find value in embracing even things that they consider to be their flaws um, that that or things that they would rather hide um, that are sources of shame for themselves? Tell us about how you you know, engage with young women about that using your story, but also what you've learned throughout your, your journey. Our flaws are our flavor. Get that tattooed on your butt. <laughs> our flaws are our flavor. Now that is something, I don't know when I came up with it. I don't know if I saw it on something. So I honestly don't even know. I mean, I should Google it and try and figure it out, but I've been saying this for years. And since I've been on TikTok, I have amassed two camps. One camp is girls that are spicy dancing now or are on OnlyFans, which wasn't in existence back in my day because there was no internet back in my day. But now I've got these young girls following me because they look at me as, oh my gosh, she got out of it. She's gonna inspire me to get out of it. And, or, or look at, you know, she's got scars all over her face, even after those nine surgeries. How does she have all of this self-worth? Well, trust me, it's, it's not a line. It comes and goes. But what I can tell young girls is the minute you embrace what you feel are your flaws is the minute you take ownership of your value. You are not, um, your value is not predicated on whether your nose is perfect or you have crooked teeth. It's, it's not even about any of those things. So I really want, especially in this day and age with filters and all of these girls thinking I'm never going to, I'm never going to be, you know, they try to compare themselves to these people that really are using filters. So it's insanity, right? So I just try to speak to the young girls. I get private messages all the time on TikTok. The other camp is women who are in their 60s that were also strippers. And they're so happy that I wrote this book because they have families, they have children and grandchildren, their secrets can't be told for whatever reason. So anyway, it's it's nice to have both <laughs> two of those different worlds um, seeking advice from me, which I think it's, I mean, it, I still think it's crazy, but I love, I love sharing my story. 
Yeah, it, the 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 idea that we can embrace our flaws and uh, kind of like turn into them rather than avoid them and and find content for our own learning, growth, and healing is that, I mean, that's a new story if I've ever heard one that I think deserves telling. So uh, Christine, Christine McDonald, she's the author of Face Value from Working the Pole to Bearing My Soul. If you're in the Los Angeles area uh, in this this June, Thursday, June 29th, you can join Christine at Barnes and Noble for a book event at The Grove. That's the Barnes and Noble at The Grove in Los Angeles. Thursday, June 29th at 7 p.m. She'll be doing a book signing, a Q&A, and a reading. Christine, I would love to be there. I send you all the best. Thank you for telling your story. And what a pleasure to have this long overdue conversation. It's been a gift to, to be, you know, kind of ish in proxy to your to your story and um, uh, in your journey of, of writing your book. So thank you so much for joining us and thank you for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. I truly appreciate it. And I'm so glad we came full circle. I love it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The New Story Is. My name is Dave Ursillo. Please rate our show. Give us a five-star rating. Leave us a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. You can also leave us a five-star rating on Spotify. That helps other listeners know that what we're doing is up to the quality you come to expect on a podcast like ours. Please share the show with a friend or a loved one who might enjoy it by sending them the link to thenewstory.is slash podcast or send them a link from your podcast player of choice. We'll be back next week with an all-new interview. Stick around. Keep storing on, my friend. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.